Um, hey, just a couple things uh, we want to keep in front of you continually. One of them is discipleship groups. Many of you are in a group, and that's awesome, but if you haven't uh, taken that next step to learn about discipleship groups or join a group, I want to encourage you uh, to write out these back doors. There's a brochure where you can learn about our groups, and there's also a blue card. When you're ready to take that next step and learn about taking or getting involved in a group, you fill that out and turn that in in the office, and we would love to get you plugged into a discipleship group. We say it all the time around here that we want to be disciples making disciples. We think the most effective way to do that is through our groups. And so we want to encourage you all to learn about them and get plugged into a group uh, here at New Hope uh, so that you can uh, get to know people and live on mission with our church here. Uh, Another thing is that we love partnering uh, with Samaritan's Purse every year. And we've done that for 13 years uh, to be a drop-off location for uh, Operation Christmas Child. And uh, you can learn right about that out here in the lobby. There's a table set up with all kinds of information. You can jump on our website uh, to learn about it. Uh, my son just uh, started basketball. His first game was yesterday, and he got new basketball shoes for this season, and he kept the box set aside so he could do Operation Christmas Child. And I want to encourage you as an individual um, or your family, come together and pack boxes, or you as a discipleship group, uh, pack uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes, and you can drop them off this coming week. So starting tomorrow, all week long, you can come here to the church in room 301 and drop those boxes off. Uh, learn more about it on the website or right out here in the lobby after the service. We want to encourage you to do that. Hey, we're continuing a teaching series in the book of Nehemiah, and today we're going to be in chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on and get ready at Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll be there in just a few moments. And we've been in this series that we're calling What If? And we're asking a lot of questions through this series. What if God is moving in a powerful way? What if God's trying to teach you something? If God's trying to guide you? If God's trying to use you to do something big for his kingdom? All kinds of questions uh, that this book has answered for us. I want to catch you up because it's been a couple weeks. Nehemiah is this young leader, and he finds himself in the the palace of the king of Persia. And he has kind of climbed the ranks of management. And as a young kid, or as a young leader, uh, growing that quickly in this role, it's been a pretty incredible thing. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of authority. uh, He's got a lot of privilege. Everything that he could ever want is taken care of. But as we learn that, we also learn in that first chapter that a burden was placed on his heart. This guy develops a burden for a group of people that he'd never met, but he is related to them through religion and ethnicity. Uh, He's tied to them. And so he has this burden on his heart for a group of people that had been exiled for years and years and had finally been released to go home. But when they arrive in their city, everything is torn down and in ruins. Nehemiah hears about this and he begins to fast and pray. And what we learn uh, early on in the book is that God's people are called to be people. When a burden's on our heart, we fast and we pray. We spend time praying about it because God works things out in our heart to prepare us for action through our prayers. Because God's people aren't just only called to be people of prayer, but people of action. And so Nehemiah goes to the king and he gets permission to go back to this, this city to rebuild the walls. And he arrives on the scene and he gathers the people. And one of the things I really appreciate about this book is that uh, no matter where you're at on your journey uh, of faith and understanding who Jesus is and what he's called you to, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you can learn a lot from Nehemiah. And as he arrives on the scene, he gathers the people and he gives them the vision and they begin to rebuild the walls. In fact, they build the walls under a lot of persecution and opposition in record time. They get the walls completely finished. You get about halfway through the book and the walls are done. Like this was the point of the book. What, What are we doing? And you come to realize that the walls were a means to an end. They, they build the city, they rebuild the walls so that they can ultimately give glory to God by rebuilding God's people spiritually. And so the shift takes place in chapter 8, 
where they're done building the physical walls, now they need to pour into the people to build them back up spiritually. And so Nehemiah begins to do that. And there's, in chapter 8, he begins to, to read the law. Ezra comes on the scene and he reads God's word and it encourages people. And then last week, or two weeks ago, uh, David walked us through the first part in chapter 9 where he talked about the need for confession in our prayers. Today we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at it from a little bit uh, of a broader sense and we're going to look at prayer maybe in general today. And this idea of prayer, come and understand it uh, through the rest of chapter 9. It can be an intimidating thing when you think about prayer. If I were to sit and talk to you and have a conversation with you about your prayer life, I think I'd get varied responses from all kinds of different people in a room like this. Now, prayer can be overwhelming, it can be intimidating, it can be complicated, um, and we're going to learn some really valuable things about prayer from this chapter. But I want, I want you to keep two things in mind in general about prayer before we get to the, the text. Now, the first one is this, prayer is relational. Now, prayer is relational. It, God desires to have a relationship with his people. And the way in which he wants to hear from us, the Bible tells us, is prayer. He wants us to talk to him. This is not what I mean by prayers relationals. I mean, it's not intended to be a ritual. And oftentimes we slip into treating prayer like it's a ritual. Like it's this ritualistic thing that we have to do. And I have to do it at this time and this time. And if I don't do it, God will be mad at me. So I better make sure that I pray. The fascinating thing to me, though, is we don't treat any other important relationship in our life like it's a ritual. Like, how weird would that be? Like, oh, I'm about to go to bed. I better call and be a good friend before I fall asleep. Or it, it's, it's a mealtime. We better be good friends before we eat and, and talk. Uh, you don't treat friendships like rituals. We don't do that. And yet, perhaps the most important relationship you have in your entire life, we oftentimes slip into treating it like it's a ritual. We only talk to God before we eat a meal or as we fall asleep when we go to bed at night. And then when other people are praying, that's great too, but we, we just get caught up in that. And God is saying, no, it's a relational thing. I want to have a relationship with you. So that's the first thing, keep in mind. The, prayer, the intention of prayer is that it would be relational. Second thing is this, prayer must be intentional. So it's not only relational, it's intentional. What we see in Nehemiah, and what I've learned in Nehemiah over these, these weeks that we've been studying is this. Nehemiah had times where he, he set aside for these lengthy discourses with God. He'd have these big times where he'd pour out his heart and he'd, he would sit and listen and, and want to hear from God and they'd be the set-aside moments like the one we're going to look at today. Then he'd have these other times where he'd be praying and it would just be inviting God into the everyday stuff of his life where he'd, he'd be in the middle of a conversation with somebody and, and just feel the need to pray and ask God to bless that conversation and so that's exactly what he would do. And, and so you see Nehemiah had both and I think it's intentional prayer requires both. A relationship requires both these intentional times where you set aside time to speak, time to talk, and then a spur of the moment, uh, the day-to-day, everyday stuff of life. You've you got to have both. Think about it this way. My wife and I, we, go on, uh, we have a date night. We go on a date. What would my marriage look like if the only time I talked to my wife was the two hours on date night? And so we'd get to the date, say, all right, Sarah, get it out. you got two hours. I'm pretty busy outside of these two hours, so just spill it all out, all right? How would that go, right? You'd be like, yeah, you'd, I'd die. <laughs> we wouldn't even get through the date night. It wouldn't work. I told first service, she's not in first service. I'll clean it up for second service, so. But it wouldn't work. That's an important time for us to sit and talk, but I, I need to have her 
uh, these day-to-day conversations where when I get home from work, we talk briefly, or I'm on my way out the door to a meeting, we talk briefly, or in the middle of the day, I call her on the phone or I send her a text. That's equally as important as the time we set aside face-to-face with no distractions, just one-on-one talking. You see, you need both. You need to be intentional about both. And here's the thing, God desires both. God desires time set aside for him where it's just you and him and you're talking, you're pouring out your heart. We're going to learn a little bit about that today. But God also desires to be included in the everyday stuff of your life. On on your way to work, you stop at a stoplight and you can talk to God. On your way home, you can talk to God. Taking the garbage out to the curb, you can have a conversation with the Lord. You can include him at any time, not just at meals and not just before you fall asleep at night. See, God wants us to be intentional about the time we spend with him because he knows that feeds the relationship that ultimately gives us the fulfillment we need in life. And so Nehemiah sets, a t- sets aside this time to pray with the people. And so they have this lengthy prayer. And we're going to read a lot of scripture today, so I want you to bear with me. We don't oftentimes do that, but I think it's healthy. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 6, and we're ultimately here in the next just few moments. We're going to read all the way through verse 31. So I want to ask you, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and pull it out. If you don't have one, you can grab one off the seat in front of you, uh, turn it on on your app. It will come up on the screen as well. We're going to walk our way through reading this passage, and then we're going to draw some principles about prayer from it. Starting in verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all the hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Just a brief pause. This prayer begins by acknowledging how great and awesome God is. I mean, our prayers should start that way too, to stop and pause, but not because God needs a reminder of how great he is. It's not like when we pray, he's like, oh yeah, I forgot. Thank you. I forgot how great I am. That's, thank you. It's not for that. When we pray and we begin our prayers by acknowledging how incredible he is, how good he's been, how much he deserves worship. When you open your prayers that way, you're realigning yourself. You're not realigning him. You're reminding you of how great he is to shift your perspective, to focus yourself for the rest of your prayer time. And so he begins the same way. Continuing on in verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and against the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. A pillar of cloud you led them in in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you have made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in, the, in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. 
They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But you stiffened their neck, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. If you if you underline in your Bible, I want to encourage you to highlight that or underline that. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who you brought up out of Egypt and had, command, and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by the day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For 30 years you sustained them in the, for 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. You, so the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave, in, gave them into their hand, and the kings and the peoples of the land, that they might uh, do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn and vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and they were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in their time of suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and, the, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies." And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and they did not obey your commands, but sinned against, the, against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their, the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. A lot of reading, I know. You're like, man, that was a ton. And it's interesting to me how sometimes we can get uncomfortable doing that. And yet together as God's people, to read God's word like that is a powerful thing. It's important for us to do from time to time. The reason I wanted to read through that lengthy discourse there is because I think you can pull four major principles about God to encourage our prayer times. Okay, so we're going to learn four big things about God that in the midst of your approach to prayer, man, these are so helpful to remember, to keep in mind, to hide these truths in your heart while you're praying so that as you're praying, your, your, your focus and your perspective is the way it should be. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through these four. In your English Bible, what we just read, it may actually be broken into four different paragraphs. And these truths are coming from each of those paragraphs. And the first one is this. 
God will never abandon his people, and he's always aware of their circumstances. If you noticed in what we were reading, we learned that God delivered his people from the bondage uh, to slavery in Egypt. He led them in the wilderness. He gave them the law at Mount Sinai. He provided for them bread uh, from heaven and water from the rock. He continually met every one of their needs, continually delivered them from every one of their enemies. Over and over and over again, God continually reminded his people that he was there for them. And all they had to do was to cry out. He would never abandon them or leave them alone. Here's a fear of mine. Many of us have been in church for so long that the power of that statement is lost on us. Let me put that up there again. God will never abandon his people. And he always knows their circumstances. I mean, that, those words can be lost on us because we've been in church for so long and we've heard so many different things and we've read so many Christian books that we forget. Do you realize in a room, look around this room, in a room with this many people in it, there's a lot of pain represented here. There's a lot of difficulty people are walking through right now. That's not lost on me. And guess what? That's not lost on God. Do you realize that the God of the universe will never leave you? That if you walk with him, if you know Jesus, you will never be left alone no matter how difficult life gets. He is always there with you, will never abandon you. That he loves you and he cares for you. I mean, does that truth get lost on you or do you let it sit heavy on your heart? That there's not a tear that is ever going to be shed from anybody in Christ. There's not a tear that is ever shed that is ever ever forgotten by God. He knows every pain you experience. He knows every difficulty you walk through. He knows every frustration that you're going through in your life. And he's there and he cares about you. Look, in a room like this, we're bound to have people that are just really frustrated and angry and hurting, and yet we can lose sight of the fact that because of this promise, when I pray, I can remember how incredibly faithful he's been to never having abandoned me in the past. Never, never leaving me, always being there, knowing my circumstances, knowing my heart. Every time I felt pain, it's as if he just stopped and said, I know, I know. And he walked with me through it every step of the way. So now as I get ready to walk through this new circumstance, this new difficulty, this new tragedy, this new frustration, this new season, because of his faithfulness, I can walk with it, through it with a confidence. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, I will not fear walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because you are with me. You're with me every step of the way. I'm not scared because you've been with me every step of the way. So maybe when we pray, we acknowledge how great God's been. And we stop and we say, God, you've been so faithful. I remember specifically, God, you helped me through that. And I knew that you were there with me then. And I knew that you helped me with that situation with that person so as I get ready to walk into this one, I know you're going to be with me. So I'm not scared because I know you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're not abandoning me. You're not leaving me. It's the first thing we learn. Second thing is this. God guides and teaches his people. See, God guided them out of Egypt. He guided them through the desert. He guided them into the promised land and away from enemy after enemy after enemy. And the whole time, God is teaching them lessons, valuable lessons. Because it's usually in the midst of our difficulties that we learn our most profound lessons. Again, if we were to sit and talk to one another, and I were to talk to you about some of the greatest lessons you'd learned in your entire life, almost all of those lessons could be tied to a season of pain. 
Most of us would say, man, I went through this incredibly difficult moment and I learned this incredible lesson. I was matured through this season of pain and suffering. And see, God takes us through the, the midst of all of these things. Every journey in your life, God has wanted to teach you and he's wanted to shape you and he's wanted to mold you and mature you and prepare you. Every time I come to something like this, I'm always reminded of the story of Joseph. You can find it in Genesis chapters 37 through 50 if you want to read it later. It's a young kid who's, who's favored by his dad big time. And uh, he has this incredible dream where he's told he's going to be one of the most powerful people in the world and that his brothers will bow down to him and it's given to him in this imagery. And so he does what every young kid in his immaturity does. He goes to his brothers and he says, guess what? I had an awesome dream. And in this dream, you worship me and I'm awesome. And then when I, was, I woke up from this awesome dream, dad bought me this awesome new coat. But I've noticed he didn't get you guys one because I think he loves me more than he loves you. And so then they did what any good brothers would do. They beat him up and they threw him in a hole. <laughs> they grab him, they beat him up, they throw him in this hole, and then he's sold into slavery. What's going on, God? What about that dream? What about that dream, God? After he's sold into slavery, he's given a, to a, a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife is not the nicest lady, and she makes a move on Joseph. Joseph remains faithful and does not do anything, so she lies about it, gets him thrown in prison. He gets thrown in prison again through his faithfulness. He climbs the ranks. He has a cupbearer and a baker who promise to remember him when they get out. And they get out, and sure enough, they don't remember him. And after that moment, there's two more years where he sits in prison. You've got to be thinking, God, what about that dream? Finally, he's released from prison, and through a series of events, he becomes the second most powerful person in the entire world. Thirteen years after the dream, he's finally finding it fulfilled. And in one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, his brothers come back on the scene. And now he's in the position of power and the dream can come true. And he looks at them. And 13 years earlier, I think it would have gone differently. But he looks at them and he says, what you intended for evil, God has used to save many lives. You got to think, in that moment, he was only prepared to answer them that way because of the 13 years of God guiding and teaching him. You see, there are things that we go through in life that we can't see and we don't understand. But in our prayer times, what if we begin to pray, God, I don't know that I see it right now, but what are you teaching me? What are you trying to do in my life right now? What, what do you want me to see? And God responds in three specific ways for his people today. He gives us three ways in which he guides and teaches us. The first is his word. His word. You want to know where God's leading you, go to his word. Read the Bible. Spend time listening to the Father through the words of Scripture. Second way is His Spirit. And the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit leads us, comforts us, convicts us. Uh, he leads us. And the third way is His people. He puts godly people around you. This is the purpose of the church. I've said this a hundred times. The church is not a stage in an auditorium. The church is a group of people seeking to love and chase after Jesus with everything they have. When I say godly counsel, it's like when you're going through a difficulty and you're trying to see what God's teaching you, you get godly counsel. Look, that doesn't only mean that you call the church and schedule a meeting with a pastor. You can do that. But that's not the only way to get wise counsel. As a matter of fact, I would argue there's a lot of people in this church with a lot of godly counsel that would be a lot better than you would get if you scheduled a meeting to sit down and talk to me. You can do that, but, but God's put other godly people around you. This is why it fascinates me when parents come, and, and, and this is just one example. They're like, hey, my kid's getting ready to go to college, and we're thinking about this university. And I'm always thinking, why are you missing the most important question? 
about where your kids go to school. It's where's the nearest healthy church to that campus to get your kid plugged in and surrounded by godly people. Because what are we thinking? I'm going to send my kid away for four years to be shaped and molded by a university and not surround him with God or her with godly counsel all around them, which is one of the three primary ways that God teaches us and shapes us. You see, when we pray, we need to pray, Lord, please, I'm not sure I'm seeing it, so put some godly counsel around me that I might understand what you're teaching me and where you're leading me in this season. See, we learn that here from this passage. The third thing is this. God always provides for his people. God will always provide for his people. God provided for all of their physical needs, all of their spiritual needs, over and over and over again. And even they would continually kind of turn away from him. They, they would continually do what was wrong. And even though he would provide, they kind of took it for granted. And here's the thing I want you guys to know. Hey, God will always provide for what you need from his perspective, not yours. From his perspective, and if you knew what God knows, you would ask for things differently. If you could see what God sees about your life and your future, if you could know what he knows, it would shape and change your prayers. They would look a lot different. I think oftentimes we're convinced that what we want is really what we need. And we get on our kids about that all the time. And then we find ourselves praying for what we want. Not always what we need. I've used this analogy numerous times. I think oftentimes when we're thinking about our life and what we need in our life, it's like sitting in an airplane and coach, and you got that little, little tiny window next to you, and the two most scary times can be paralleled to some very important things that need to happen in your life. It would be takeoff and landing, and right before takeoff in an airplane, you're looking out that little window, and sometimes you just freak out because you think we've been going fast for a long time. Pull up. Pull up. That's it. We're done, Right? And you, ah, it's over. And then when you're landing, you look out the window and lean over other people to look out the window, and you think you see the runway you're supposed to hit, but you're not hitting it yet. You're, Come on, man, get down. What are we doing? We're overshooting the landing. We're done. We're done. It's over. And this is how we respond. And yet the whole time, the pilot's in the front, sees everything. He knows exactly what he needs to know. I think oftentimes in our prayer life, we're thinking, God, you're doing this wrong. Come on, God, come on, come on. And the whole time, God's like, I know what you need. I know what you need. I know what you need. Let's change your perspective. See, God will always provide for you for what you need. Always. And he continually did that for his people, but they got distracted over and over again by what they wanted. But that what they wanted instead of what they needed. And instead of shifting their perspective, they went after what they needed. And God continually wanted to realign them. This, this is the perspective that you need. And so God will always provide for his people. The fourth is this. God is always ready and prepared to forgive his people. Three different times in this passage, the people cried out to God and God in his great mercy. It said he was, he was slow to anger and quick and steadfast love and mercy for his people. Don't let this be lost on you. This is incredible. It's as if God is sitting on the edge of his seat and he can't wait for us to come to him. Like he's eager, like a really good dad. He just can't wait for his kids to come. I, I have to discipline my kids all three differently. Uh, and, and they have one, some, their, their hearts, are so, some are softer than others. And I think the softest heart we have is probably my oldest, uh, Caleb, because I rarely have to punish him. I usually just say, buddy, I'm getting really disappointed. Boom, he's done. It levels him. Then I wait it out. And it's hard to wait. It's really hard to wait. But then eventually he'll come in and he'll say, dad, I'm so sorry. And I can't wait to restore him. 
and tell him why I love him and what I value about him and to build him back up. I can't wait for those moments. Those are so important. God's the same way. He's the same way. When we mess up and we make bad mistakes, oftentimes we don't get back into our prayer. We don't get back into praying because we're scared of what we've done, right? It's like you're sitting in a courtroom and the judge has said, you're innocent, you're free to go, and you understand that truth, but you sit there as if you're waiting for another verdict. He said, you're already good. to So get up and walk out. We understand grace. We oftentimes struggle to walk in grace. And so God is pleading, just come. I just want to forgive you and restore you and lift you up. God can't wait to forgive you. And many of you in this room, you're carrying something with you. You're carrying guilt. And the enemy's using it to shame you and attack your identity. He's using it to make you feel like you're less, like you're not important. You're too messed up. You've gone too far. And God is waiting to say, out of my way, Satan. I've got to get to my kids because I can't wait to forgive them. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, if we'll come to him like the people did over and over again, confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful, always faithful, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from anything that makes us unrighteous. And so in your prayer time, don't ever forget to say, Father, I'm sorry where I've fallen short. And I want to accept and walk and live in your grace. Now, what do we do from here? And these are the four truths and this incredible passage. And you guys can walk out of here and I know I need to pray. And before you know it, it becomes a ritual again. How do we learn to love our prayer times? How do we learn to really enjoy spending time in the presence of the Lord? There's a hundred things I can tell you to do. I'm going to give you two. Two that have really impacted me and helped my prayer life. And my hope would be that they would help yours. The first one is this. The first principle is this. Discipline precedes joy. You've heard me say that before. Discipline precedes joy. We must discipline ourselves and the Lord will reward us with a joy that goes beyond anything we could do on our own. Sometimes you have to work at it. To get past the barrier of discipline, you get to then experience the joy of an incredible prayer time where you spend time with the Lord. I was at a conference one time with a mentor of mine and we had to share a hotel room. This was a few years back and um, he was, I knew he was an early riser and so... Like, I, I get up pretty early, but he was like, I knew he was going to get up earlier than me. And uh, I hear something going in the morning, the first morning, and I check my, my, uh, my phone. I'm like, what time is it? It's like, it's 4.50. We don't have to be anywhere till 8.30. What are you doing? I might have even said that out loud. So, <coughs> so I get up, and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to get ready. Maybe go down if they've already started, if they got coffee or anything. I don't know if they do that that early. So um, I look over and I see him and he's sitting in the corner of the room and he's sitting like sitting with his arms on his knees and his lips are moving. He's, I mean, he's just softly and he's praying. And I know right away he's praying. He's up at a little before five o'clock in the morning. He's praying. I'm like, man, I'm going to, this is weird because the sink's like in the room and there's no real like privacy. I'm just going to go for it. And I washed my face and I took a shower and I, got dressed, and sure enough, he's still praying. I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out uh, down to the, the lobby, and I go down to the lobby, and they did. They had coffee and stuff starting to come out, so I got coffee, and I read the paper. I read my Bible. I went back up to the room, and sure enough, I walk in. He's still praying, and I'm like, ah, and I closed the door, and I just kind of waited because it's weird. You don't want to walk in there and be like, hey, can I interrupt you and God? Um, so I closed the door, and 
waited, and then when he's finished, I could tell he's finished, I went back in, and it hit me. I want to pray like that. I really want, man, I want to enjoy my time with God the way you just did. It was like it was nothing. So I sat down, I said, hey, how did, how did you do that? I mean, I've been in seminary, and I've been in uh, Bible college, and I work at a church. I'm like a professional prayer, right? Like, I get asked to pray at every meal, every time I'm anywhere. Hey, he's here. Let him pray and all the time. But that was incredible. And he just told me. It didn't start out that way. And he said, oftentimes I sit here for an hour or two, and I get 15 good minutes with the Lord because I'm fighting distraction the whole time. And then he said, discipline comes before joy. You've got to work at it. Just make it happen. Second principle I want to give you is this. Keep it simple. Don't, don't overcomplicate what God doesn't overcomplicate. I read about a guy, a Hungarian doctor named uh, Ignaz Simmelweis. Now, most of you haven't heard of him, but some of you in the medical profession probably have. In 1846, he committed himself to figuring out why newborns and moms had a high mortality rate in a hospital compared to uh, with a midwife. And they, didn't, they couldn't understand in a, in a hospital ward, why are all these women and babies dying? Five times higher, at a 5% higher rate than they would with a midwife. And this is years before the you know, germs were even discovered. So he set out and he studied and he went to work and he interviewed people and he figured and he did case studies and all of this research. At the end of all of his research, he came to this conclusion. Many of the, the surgeons performing these deliveries were in one room performing an autopsy on a body, walking right into the room to deliver the baby over and over and over again. And he concluded, you've got to wash your hands. And so that's what he said. The reason this mortality rate is so much higher is because these doctors aren't washing their hands. Well, all these doctors and all these medical professionals, they said, you're crazy. Absolutely crazy. That can't be it. It can't be that simple. It has to be more complicated. And they threw him in a psychiatric hospital and proceeded to do their own research. And then they had to release him because he was right. And so now you have these rooms before doctors go into surgery because of this man where they wash in a chlorine-based solution to completely rid themselves of the germs before going in. Sure enough, that was the solution. Why are we talking about that? Because just like they overcomplicated, they felt the need to overcomplicate it. I think we do the same thing with our prayers. I can't just pray. I can't just talk to God. I can't just spend time pouring my heart out to God. It's got to be theological. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't speak big words. I don't have a great voice. I need to make it this and that. I got to go to this place or this. I have to have an entire room in my house called a prayer room because I watched a movie. I have to have all these different things. I can't just keep it simple and have a conversation with my heavenly father who's on the edge of his seat because he's crazy about you and can't wait for you to start talking to him. Keep it simple. It does not have to be complicated. You don't need to go and read 100 books and figure out the 19 best steps to a better prayer life, but you can do those things. But here's the thing. Don't let those things stop you from praying. We overcomplicate something that God doesn't want us to overcomplicate. It's our Heavenly Father just wants to know us. He wants to hear from you because He's crazy about you, because He loves you. And yes, you'll learn and you'll grow because like we studied, you'll start here and he'll bring you so much further than you ever would have gone on your own, but you have to start. 
You have to start. So my encouragement to you as you leave this place today is keep it simple. Just start talking to him. And then open his word and hear from him. And get godly counsel to help you mature and grow. As he takes you somewhere, you'll never get without him. And he'll remind you over and over and over again that he'll never abandon you. That he always knows your circumstances. That he'll always provide for you. That he'll always forgive you. And that he'll teach and mold and shape you all along the way. Keep it simple. Because that's how God keeps it. Let's pray.